When I was in my, I'd say, mid to late 20s, I was in a lot of weddings. You know, you're that age where you're your friends, your college friends, your people you grew up with, they all start to get married. You know, we joke, oh, there goes another one. You know, another one bites the dust or whatever. And I was in one very close friend of mine's wedding. It was a small wedding uh, <clears throat> at a little small country Baptist church out in the, kind of out in the country. Uh, I said country. Um, there was a young preacher that was doing the ceremony, and he was wise beyond his years. I was very impressed by him. But he called the wedding party together, not the bride and groom, but everybody else. And he said, uh, their names were Garth and Renee. He said, I want to tell every one of you, this day is not about you. It's about the bride and the groom. This is their day. We're here to serve them. We're here to make sure their day is special. We're sure to make sure if there's a problem, we will take care of it. They don't need to worry about anything. This is their day. And you all know, especially a bride, you want that perfect day. And you want the people, your support behind you. If something comes up, they'll take care of it. So we were serving that day. We weren't there to showboat. We weren't there to say, look how good I look in my rented tuxedo. Boy, don't I look great. It's not about you. It's about them. So that's just kind of stuck with me over the years. There have been some times it's like, you know, this is not about me right now. And that's, if I had to, had to give a title to this lesson, that's what it is. It's not about you. It's not about me. Now regarding this uh, illustration up here, you see the me is the center of the universe and the, the earth is going around. And I don't know if you can read that text. If everybody can read that, it says, as a matter of fact, the world does revolve around me. I think sometimes we feel that way. Not only do we feel that way in our day-to-day -day life, sometimes we might feel that way in our spiritual life, and that's just not the way to be. I want to look at a scripture in Ephesians chapter 1, and if you'd like to turn there, that's fine. I'll have this up on the overhead uh, for a pretty good while also. I want to read this, and then I want to back up and look at it a second time a different way. By the way, I'm using the Holman Christian Standard version, yours, and, and with what Ben read. There's a little bit different, but I think that's a healthy thing. We can look at it and it's like, well, oh, I see. It says here, and you get a little more flavor of what the, what the text is saying. Praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavens. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted through Jesus Christ for himself, according to his favor and will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he favored us with in the beloved. We have redemption in him through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the richness of his grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he planned in him for the administration of the days of fulfillment to bring everything together in the Messiah, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. I love this scripture. I go to this a lot. When, you know, sometimes people will say, well, yes, God created man, but you know the story of the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, they sinned. 
So God sort of needed a plan B. So he came up with this scheme of redemption that he would send his son. Well, that's not what this says. God planned to send his son. Before the foundation of the world, he made this plan. He organized this scheme of redemption that if man sinned, that he would send his son. And if you read on in Ephesians, a couple of times in a couple of verses after this, it talks about, it keeps on this thought, but it says, to the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. It's not to the praise of our glory. We have no reason to glory in God's redemption other than he has done it for us. His plan was to redeem man, sinful man, that we would be holy. We couldn't be holy without the blood of his son. His plan was to adopt us as his own. He sent his own son, that way we could be adopted. You'll see that this plan involves the God and Father and Jesus the Son much more than it involves us. God elected us, he chose us to be holy and blameless, and we can't do that on our own. Now, I want to look at this text just a different way. Hopefully our technology is working good. If you look at the dark text, sort of isolated some things to, to maybe emphasize what this is all about. You won't see us in there very much, but you'll see in him, through him, a lot. In Christ, he chose us in him, holy and blameless in his sight. He predestined us through Jesus Christ for himself. His favor and will, his glorious grace, he favored us. In him, his blood, his grace, he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known his will, his good pleasure. He planned in him, in the Messiah, in him. So does that take on a little different character when you look at it that way? This is, this is God doing things through the Messiah. And we're a small part of that. We're the beneficiary of such grace and such a plan but we really have very little to do with it. This plan, at least the, the, the plan part of it, doesn't have much to do with us. Now back to our little model and with the, you know, the world ro rotating around us. A long time ago, the settled science in the world uh, was Ptolemy. I always have trouble saying that because I feel like I'm spitting tobacco juice. Ptolemy, P-T-O. Ptolemy was a Greek mathematician and philosopher from Alexandria, which was a you know, university city, big library, center of knowledge at that time. His model was the geocentric model. And if you put, break that up, you see geo, you know that means earth, centric. The earth was the center of the universe. And the settled science was his model of that day that everything you would see in, in the sky, in the heavens, the sun, the moon, stars, other planets, were all sort of fixed on this giant capsule that sort of rotated around us. Every heavenly object, celestial object that you saw, rotated around the earth. That was what everybody believed. But centuries later, a man named Copernicus said, well, that doesn't really make sense because if it's all, they're all fixed and static in their location, these planets are sort of doing this 
And the moon, you know, it comes up at a different, pla different place every day, and the sun is like, this isn't really working out right. So someone much smarter than me, Copernicus, came up with the heliocentric model that we actually have a solar system and our planets and uh, the moons revolve around each planet and the planets revolve around the sun. And that, of course, is, is the way it is. But for so long, we thought, well, everything revolves around the Earth. But it didn't. So all of a sudden, everything changed. Well, sometimes I think we have a sort of a self-centric model that it all revolves around us. And it really doesn't. It revolves around God. We did not create ourselves. We were created. Let me repeat that. We did not create ourselves. We were created. Ephesians 2.10, For we are His creation, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time so that we should walk in them. God designed a plan for us that we would glorify Him. To the praise of his glory, as it says in Ephesians 1. Now, I don't want to step on toes of just the religious world in general, but what's the tendency today when it comes to how we approach what, what religion we want to have? Does the general public look at, I want to go somewhere that really digs deep into God's word, I want to go somewhere that really respects God's word and is obedient to what God's word said? Or do I want to go and feel good? Do I want to be entertained? Do I want to go to some place that's going to come in and confirm what I already believe? Not be challenged, just have a good time, have a pleasant service, and go on my merry way and everything's okay. I don't really have to change my life because the preacher said everything's good. Just as long as I believe, and I do believe, then everything's fine. The world tends to look at religion that way. We want it, still it's about us. I want to go somewhere that makes me feel good. Almost the concept, you know what an echo chamber is? You want to go somewhere that tells you what you already believe. We tend to like our, our news that way. If there's a political spin on it, we want to watch something that kind of, we're kind of on the same page. I know I do that. You'll always find those that will tell you what you want to hear. Paul wrote to Timothy in the second epistle to Timothy, 2 Timothy 4.3, For the time will come when they will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear something new. You'll, you'll see churches all over in different signs and different names, and I'm really intrigued by some of the names that some of these groups come up with. Some of them are pretty clever. You know, I guess if you're going to you know, get a building and get a group together and start a church, and well, what are we going to call it? Well, let's come up with something that will really say what we're all about. And some of those names, it's like, I mean, some of them are quite creative. But one that I see that's like, you've got that so wrong. It says the people's church. Amen. It is not the people's church. It is the Lord's church. You think about that, and I know what they're trying to say. All people are welcome. It's, it's for the people. Come on in. But this, this church here is not ours. The Lord didn't die for our church. He died for his church. 
The Lord's body is a voluntary institution. He won't drag you into it. What Jesus said regarding whose church it is, he said to Peter, Thou art Peter, upon this rock I will build, say it out loud if you want, my church. Okay. It is his. He has authority over it, and we are subject to him. I want to look at, there are a couple of things that they're going to be just real quickly looked at. I'm sure they'll be real familiar to most of you in here. The first thing, easier said than done, because it doesn't change with the red light. There we go. Israel wanted a king. You know, when in the after the Egyptian captivity and the wandering in the wilderness, they finally arrived in the land of Canaan. And after they had sort of settled in, they used, God used uh, prophets, but he also judges. You know, that there were, I think, 15 judges, and Samuel was the last one that was a full judge. His sons, who were very wicked, judged just a small portion. I think it was in Beersheba, but Samuel was kind of the end of the judge time. The people wanted a king. Why did they want a king? Well, because all these other nations that surround us, they all have kings. Why don't we have a king? And God apparently was very, I don't know if hurt is the right word, but uh, felt betrayed that they wanted a king. You have me. You have God, and you want a king? You want a man? He warned them. 1 Samuel 10, 17-19 Samuel summoned the people to the Lord at Mizpah and said to the Israelites, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought Israel out of Egypt, and I rescued you from the power of the Egyptians and all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your troubles and afflictions. You said to him, You must set a king over us. God, through Samuel, told them, It's like, you know what a king will do to you? A king will take your sons and he'll put them in the army. A king will take your sons and he'll make them work on your land that he'll take away from you. You know what he'll do? He'll take your daughters away from you and make them servants in his own house. This is what you want. Well, they volunteered to have a king. They volunteered for servitude. What earthly king could stand against God? We can look, we can look back at that and go... You had God. Why would you want a king? But, you know, sometimes we make similar mistakes with just different circumstances. Now with what Ben read earlier, Romans chapter 6. What then, should we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Absolutely not. Paul wrote to the church in Rome, the question was, and it's, he's asked several rhetorical questions throughout this book. Well, since we have so much grace, God has given us this enormous gift of grace. Therefore, we can just keep on going. We can keep on sinning because we have so much grace that will wipe it away later. So let's just keep doing what we're doing. We don't really have to change because we have grace. Are we free to sin? Verse 16, don't you know, he said absolutely not, don't you know that if you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you're volunteering to be their slave. You are slaves of that one you obey, either of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. 
But thank God that although you used to be slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching you were transferred to. And having been liberated from sin, you became enslaved to righteousness. You can't not be a slave. I'll say that again. That, I know that's bad grammar. But you can't not be a slave. You were a slave to obedience leading to righteousness or you're a slave to sin. Right now, you're one or the other. A slave leading to death. And we think, well, I've been, I've been saved, therefore I can just keep on sinning and sinning and sinning and sinning and I'll just call on God's grace to forgive me later anyway. Paul's saying don't do that. We're a slave to the one we're obeying. And if you're living a life in sin, you're a slave to sin leading to death. Leading to death. Just about who we are as a culture... Um, I know in this country in particular, but in others, slavery is a touchy subject to talk about. I just pulled up against, again, I, I don't want to say swiped. I borrowed these from the Internet. Um, <laughs> American culture is all about, Western culture, not just America, it's all about freedom, liberty, independence, and that's not a bad thing. For most of us, we feel like we want to be in control of our own decisions, our own destiny. We pick our spouse. We pick our job. We pick where we want to live. We pick who our friends are. We pick where we go to worship. Um, has anyone ever been a teenager or had a teenager say to you, I can't wait till I'm 18 and you can't tell me what to do? I've both. <laughs> been and heard that, said and heard that. We want our independence. So when we talk, especially to Westerners, we talk about, oh, you're a slave, you're a servant. No, I'm not. Oh, no, I'm not. We want our independence. If someone, if you're out with some friends and you see your boss, whether it's your manager, your supervisor, president of your company, whoever it is, do you say, hey, friend, let me introduce you to my master? You would never say that. Here's my master. Oh, this is my boss. Oh, I work with him. We don't want to put ourselves down too much. We want to keep, you know, we're, we're still, we're, we're, we're not servants. We're not slaves. We don't want to feel that way. Not necessarily a bad thing, but I think that's our approach sometimes. We cannot not be slaves. God's plan from the beginning was to send Jesus to offer himself that we could be adopted into his household to actually be sons, not only slaves, but sons in his household. In a sense, our obedience to this master frees us. That's, that's almost a paradoxical statement, but our obedience as a slave to this master will free us. All right, just a few. Sometimes to know what obedience to the master is, it's helpful to look at what it isn't. And we have some very good people that we can read about in the scriptures. Some good, some we don't think are very good. But we can see what they did and how that, how that worked out. In Mark 10, and you read in Mark 20, or, uh, Matthew 20, James and John, two of the closest disciples of Jesus, said, Lord... In your kingdom, let one of us sit on your right and one of us on your left. They're jockeying for position among the, other, among the 12. And in Matthew 20, their mother went to Jesus and asked essentially the same thing. Let my sons, one sit on your right and one on your left. 
Jesus rebuked them saying, do you have any idea what you're asking for? Are you willing to do what I'm about to go through with me? Of course, they had no idea what he was really referring to. Hey, James and John, it's not about you. It's about Jesus. It's about God's glory. In Acts chapter 8, we just talked about this in our class um, not too long ago. Simon the sorcerer, not Simon Peter, but Simon the sorcerer on the island of, uh, not on the island, I'm, I'm thinking a different, different man, in Samaria, uh, when Philip had gone up there and had preached to him, and he obeyed the gospel, he became a Christian, follower, a disciple of Jesus. Then Peter and John later went, and he went to Peter and John. He had seen them working these signs and wonders. He was a sorcerer, but, you know, phony tricks. All of a sudden, they're really doing this. They're really healing the sick. They're really doing these signs and wonders. Boy, wouldn't I be famous. So he offered them money. And Peter rebuked him and told him he was condemned for that. And he asked, pray for me that this won't come, this won't come to pass against me. Simon the sorcerer, it's not about you. It's about God's glory. In Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, I bet you've heard that story since you were a little kid, if you've gone to Bible study as a child. The early church in Jerusalem, people that owned properties were coming in. They were selling their land, giving the money to the apostles, laying the money at the apostles' feet so they could distribute it to those that had stayed on, that didn't have money, they didn't have a you know, place to stay, they didn't have food. It was being distributed. Barnabas was one such man who did that and was a great encouragement. That's what his name means. But along come Ananias and Sapphira. They sold a piece of property and they went to the apostles and they said, here it is. Here's all the money we got from that land. Well, what was wrong with that statement? That was part of the money they had gotten from that land. Is this all? Is this, is this the whole price? Oh, yes. Yes, it is. Well, what happened? They lied and they, uh, they were both struck dead for lying to God. It's not about you, Ananias and Sapphira. It's about God's glory. In Numbers 20, Israel was wandering in the wilderness. You know, they didn't have water. God told Moses and Aaron, you go and you strike, or I'm sorry, you speak to this rock, and it'll bring forth water. Well, who gets water out of a rock? Nobody. So obviously God was going to perform a miracle to show his holiness. But Moses, who was so frustrated with these people complaining all the time, he just walked up and said, why do I have to give you, and struck, the, struck it with his staff. Water came out, God kept his part of the deal. But Moses was punished, not allowed to enter the promised land because of his disobedience. It's not about you, Moses. Even a great man like Moses, it's about God. The last one is Diotrephes. We just talked about this on Wednesday night. In the church when John had written 3 John, there was a man called Diotrephes who was a powerful man in that congregation. He liked things his way. He liked his preeminence among the brethren is what it says. His behavior, he was refusing men who came sent from John. And he wouldn't, wouldn't even allow other brethren to help them, to give them money, to send them on their way. Diotrephes, it's not about you. John said, when I get there, I will have a talk with this man. It's not about you, it's about God. Well, I think a week or two ago, Mitch brought out the parable of the talents, the five, you know, you read in one account, the five talents, the two and the one. 
and the five and the two were both profitable. The master was away, gave them some, some money to go and make a profit with. Those two were profitable, but the one buried it. What did he say to those two when he came back and they, they had made a profit and see, Lord, what I've done, I've made this profit with your money and they had been good servants. What did he say to them? Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. This is what we hope to hear because right now we're in the period of we have our talents. We're supposed to be making a profit for the Lord. So that day when we're dead and we appear before the Lord, will we hear this? Well done, good and faithful servant. Or have we just buried it and we're just sort of cruising along, biding our time? Are you a faithful servant? Are you an obedient servant? Are you a slave to obedience leading to righteousness? Or are you a slave to sin leading to death? Are you a part of the Lord's body? If you're not part of the Lord's body, you really have no hope of salvation because it's through him. Remember we read in Ephesians chapter 1. Righteousness comes through him. 